Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. It's been three weeks, I guess, since I've been here, and so John, uh, John, John is the book, Dan is the guy. Uh, John is doing a good job, and Dan is Dan, Danielle. But anyway, Dan did a good job, and uh, John, uh, the last couple of weeks, and I think in about six months, Dan, I'll give you another shot to continue that or so. Okay, no, it'll actually be before then. The end of the, I think it's the end of this month or sometime, we go to California. Sometime. Anyway, <coughs> Hebrews. We're, this, is, well, this lesson tonight starts a very difficult, for many people, portion of Hebrews. Let me just read what I put down in the introduction. Uh, this portion of scripture, which will include verses 4 through 8 of chapter 6. Tonight we're just going to look at verses 11 through, uh, 511 through 6.3, and hopefully we'll get through all of this. But anyway, this portion of scripture, which includes 4 through 8, verses 4 through 8 of the next chapter is one of the more contested passages in the Bible to interpret. Many hold that these verses are speaking of immature Christians. But the content of this book and the context of the warning passages, because what we're looking at here going into chapter 6 is the third warning passage of Hebrews. We looked at Hebrews 2, we looked at Hebrews the end of 3 into 4, now the end of 5 going into chapter 6. Warning passages, and and just to refresh our memory, this book is written to Jewish people, Hebrews, but there are two groups in focus. There are those who are truly saved, possessors, and those who are just professors, they're not saved. And that is constant running through this book. The warning passages, all of them, are addressed to the professing Jewish believers who are in danger of falling back to Mosaism, the things of the temple and such. And the book of Hebrews shows, it's a book of contrasts, how much better Jesus is than a whole litany of things that were important in the Jewish world. And so we come to this portion, and there are a lot who want to say that this is speaking of immature Christians, this portion of scripture. But the context and the content of all of this are verses addressed to professing believers in the Messiah, in other words, unsaved people. It's imperative 
to identify who is being addressed here to understand what this passage teaches. I mean, that's pretty much foundational, uh, axiomatic. If we can identify who are being addressed here, then we can understand what this is saying a lot easier. And we're going to start with that tonight. Lord willing, continue it next week. Kenneth Wiest, in his commentary on this book, said this. Before beginning a study of this difficult section, we must indicate its analytical structure. The section, and he takes the section all the way down to verse 12 of chapter 6. I really think it stops at verse 8, but we'll look at that when we get there in verse 9 and and following, uh, pick up the thought. But regardless, this, this section consists of a deception of a description, excuse me, of the spiritual status of the Jews whom the writer wishes to reach, of a warning not to go back to the abrogated sacrifices of the Levitical system, and of an exhortation to put a heart faith in the New Testament sacrifice, the Messiah. It is one of the passages found throughout the book containing a warning not to go back to the type the picture, the illustration, but to go on to faith in the reality, the reality being the Messiah, Jesus. He goes on, we must be careful to note that this letter to the Hebrews is written to the professing church made up of saved and unsaved. But the concern of the writer is with reference to the unsaved, in this portion anyway. We are now ready for an exegetical study of the Greek text of the passage under discussion based upon the analysis the analysis of the entire epistle, the only scientific way of going about our work, Kenneth Weiss says, speaking to unsaved people. Now, this is very applicable uh, to people today. Uh, we have in the church, in any Bible-believing church, there are saved and unsaved. There are those who are truly saved. Probably the majority in any good Bible-believing church are saved people. But in any church of any size, you're going to have professing believers. uh, Bible-believing church of any size. Uh, And so this would be applicable to them. Now, the ones addressed here, those dull in hearing, must be a distinct group from those addressed in 6.9. And I have 6.9 here in parentheses uh, for you. And this is why I think there's a break. Uh, it doesn't end at verse 12, but it ends at verse 8. Verse 9 of chapter 6 picks up a different thought. And here's what verse 9 of chapter 6 says. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. So right there you can see a differentiation. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. Better than whom? The ones he's been previously addressing. Professing believers. Things that accompany salvation. What we have following in this chapter, in this section that we're looking at, because, uh, uh, let me pick it up, uh, this must be a distinct group from those addressed in 6.9 uh, and following because the writer is unable to speak to them about Melchizedek. 
Now, as we go on into chapter 7, the writer addresses believers in great depth about Melchizedek. So there has to be a differentiation here. There has to be two groups that are in view. Again, professing believers that are dull of hearing, uh, they cannot understand what is being said. But then he turns around and he addresses, but beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. And he goes into a lot of detail, uh, ultimately about Melchizedek in chapter 7. So in chapter 7, the writer addresses believers in great depth about Melchizedek. Thus those addressed in 5.11 through 6.8, this would technically be the entire warning passage, although the professing believers are encouraged to come to, quote, the full assurance of hope by accepting the Lord. And that's verse 11 of chapter 6, and probably why Kenneth Weiss, for example, would say it goes down to verse um, 12. Uh, I think it's just a challenge in the midst of speaking to believers, to all, to the unbelievers, come to the Lord. Don't miss it. <clears throat> so, um, we, these must be a distinct group from the professing, possessing believers that are clearly addressed in 6.12 through chapter 7. So we're going to start at verse 11, and if you just read this, the, the probably, more than likely, you're going you're to think, well, this is speaking to believers, just because of some of the terminology uh, that uh, is used. And I don't have the whole section laid out here. I probably should have done that. Um, but, you know, for example, if you want to turn over on, on the back of this page, verse 13, and we're going to go back real quickly. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the work, word of righteousness, for he is a babe. And a lot of people read that, well, a babe. You know, so that must be speaking of babes in Christ or babies in Christ or that type of thing. Uh, so you might get the um, inference from that that this is speaking of immature baby uh, Christians. It's not. And we'll see why. Shortly. So go back to verse 11. Verse 11 starts out after the first 10 verses that we looked at, of whom we have many things to say. Of whom is speaking of what is addressed in the previous 10 verses, which is the person of Melchizedek. We have a lot to say about Melchizedek. We have many things to say about him. But as the King James puts it, and hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. So we have a lot we want to say about this individual, Melchizedek, but it's, it's hard to utter. Now, um, look at the second paragraph down. He's much to say about Melchizedek. The, the best word for utter is explain. Utter is an old English King James word. Uh, the, NK, the New King James, the NASV, the NIV, the ESV, the RSV, and I stopped looking after those, by the way, uh, all translate this Greek word that King James puts as uttered, hard to explain, which makes it certainly a lot more understandable. We have many things to say about Melchizedek, but it's hard to explain it to you because you are so dull of hearing. Now, dull of hearing... <coughs> um, Sluggish. When you think of dull, uh, when you have a very sharp knife, over a period of time, what happens to that knife when it's repeatedly been used? 
it becomes dull. It becomes dull because of uh, continued usage, and it ultimately uh, needs to go back to where it was at the beginning, if you will. Uh, that's the thought with dull of hearing, sluggish uh, of hearing, that they become... Uh, another word that, that this Greek word has been translated is callous. Callous. So if, if you have become callous in your hearing, how does one get a callous? Think of if you've got a callous on your, on your hand. Yeah, you, you've constantly um, uh, had your hand um, over and over and over again doing some kind of labor, some kind of work, that ultimately, you know, you may start with a blister and that comes off, and, you know, but ultimately you get, a, you get a callus through continued usage of the hand and you develop a callus. So something getting dull, something becoming callous doesn't happen just overnight. It's a process. That's what it's saying about these professing believers. I want to speak to you about Melchizedek. I have a lot to say about Melchizedek. Uh, it's hard to explain. It's a very difficult subject, especially since you are callous in your hearing. You are dull in your hearing, uh, which means that, that over a period of time, they've come to a place that uh, on their heart, if you will, spiritually speaking, they're, they're, they're dull. They've got a callous. They're hard-hearted, and, and it's hard to get through uh, to them. Again, Kenneth Sweets. Kenneth Wee says this, but they had not always been in that condition, as is shown by the word translated are. The word means to, be, to become. It is in the perfect tense, tense, which tense speaks of a process completed in past time having present results. In other words, over a period of time, through continued use, you've developed this dullness, this callousness, this hardness to what you've heard, which reverberates down to the present day, and you cannot receive what I want to teach you because you are so hard-hearted, spiritually speaking. That's what he's saying. These people have been continually um, submitted to, subjected to, taught the truth about Jesus as the Messiah and the sacrifice over and over and over again. And they have become very hard-hearted, callous, or dull in their understanding. <clears throat> that is very possible for someone to get in that condition today. Very possible. Um, I, I, I'm sure I've shared with you in the past, maybe once or twice, I'm not sure, uh, a man by the name of Rob, uh, when I was in California, Cheryl and I were in California. I met with Rob, he was a Jewish man, very high executive, not at this point in his life, but prior to that with Levitt Furniture. Remember that? I think it was, you know, I shared that. You know, we met almost weekly for two years. And I, I had pretty much exhausted all that I knew what to tell him. I, you know, I, I ran out of stuff. Well, you know, I guess I could have gone back. You know, we covered everything from A to Z about Jesus. And so finally I decided, well, we're going to look at the book of Hebrews. And I especially wanted to look at the book of Hebrews, the warning passages. I don't remember the warning passage it was, 
But I do remember it was right around March, April, because we had a Passover Seder, and there was 100 or so people there. And Rob and his wife came, and they came, and they sat down. She came up to the head table, and she said, what did you do to Rob yesterday? I said, what do you mean? Well, after you had your Bible study, and we, we were covering one of the warning passages about your hardening heart, he came home, he couldn't stay at work. He was just so exasperated. He was so upset. And, and he came home, and, and he wouldn't sit down. He, he just walked up and down the living room, saying, I've got to call my rabbi. I've got to call my rabbi. I've got to speak to my rabbi, and that type of thing. And I, well, he was under conviction is what he was under. <clears throat> but um, I had shared the warning passage. And the only reason, I, the main reason I shared that was because after two years, he, he knew enough to teach this Bible study. Um, he, had, he was not a dumb man. He was, he was a brilliant man. But he, he knew a lot, but he had become so callous to the truth. Like here. I don't know whatever happened to Rob. Uh, I mentioned this a number of months, whenever it was I talked about it. Last I had heard, Rob was in the Baha'i faith looking for answers in Baha'i. Um, very sad uh, story. Rob reminds me of these people. They become callous, hard, and, and they're willing to listen, they're willing to hear, but saying, no, there's got to be answers somewhere else. That's what this person here is all about. Uh, Matthew 13, 14, and 15, which is quoting Isaiah chapter 6, says this, and in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, by hearing you shall hear and shall not understand. Seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For the, for the people's heart is waxed gross, or literally uh, fat, um, heavy, callous, you could actually even use here. The people's heart is waxed um, gross, their ears are dull of hearing, again, hard of hearing, and their eyes, they have closed. Lest at any time they should see, with their eyes, hear with their ears, should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. See, these people continually, in Isaiah's time and in the time of Jesus, had over and over and over again heard the truth. But they had ultimately, they closed their eyes to the truth. Uh, they hardened their heart. They rejected the message. That's the group that is being addressed here in verse 11. The writer of Hebrews saying, I, I want to tell you a lot of stuff about Melchizedek. But I can't because it's a very difficult ex explanation. It's hard to explain. And you have just become callous to the truth about Jesus and who he is. That's what it's ultimately talking about. Then in verse 12, it says this. When for the time you ought to be teachers... See, this, I mentioned Rob. Um, he could have been a teacher. He, he, he knew so much of the Bible. But he didn't have it in truth. He didn't have it personally. Uh, these people here could have been teachers. Uh, it's not lack of knowledge that was their problem. For when the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. 
And there become such as of need of milk and not of strong meat. Now, again, when you read this on the surface, you say, well, they can't take strong meat. They need milk. Later on, it says they're babes. You've got to go back to the beginning and the first principles. And, and that's why a lot of people jump to the conclusion that this is speaking of believers. It is not speaking of believers. And, and, and by the way, when we get into this next week, those who want to say that this is speaking of believers and that the believers can... And next week, we're going to... I don't think it's this week. Um, i got a lot of pages here. Um, I think it's next week. <clears throat> if, if you want to say that you can lose your salvation based on Hebrews chapter 6, and there's a lot of people that teach that, that this is speaking about believers, Christians, true born-again believers, who can lose their salvation, then you also have to teach that it's impossible for them to ever get saved again. Because what we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 6, as we go on in, in verse 4, not tonight, it says, for it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. I think that's around verse 8, 7 or 8. So if you want to believe it, you can lose your salvation. You have to then believe that that person who leaves his sal loses his salvation can never be saved again. Because it's impossible for this group of people to be brought back to the place of repentance. Now, the fact is, those who teach that you can lose your salvation based on this warning passage, they would also say you can also get saved again. But that's not the teaching of it. But we'll, we'll get into that more ne next week. So, we have the first principle. So they had they, heard a whole lot. So, we have the first principles of the oracles of God. Now, must be the same as the first principles of the doctrine of Christ, since they needed to be taught these again. Now, the doctrine of Christ, and, and I do have, um, if you turn over to page 3, not paper 3, page 3, uh, Hebrew, where Hebrews 6, 1, 2, and 3, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Now, we're not going to go on at this point. But the whole point is, <clears throat> back in verse 12 of chapter 5, <clears throat> for when the time you ought to be teachers, you have not need that one teach you again, which should be the first principles of the oracles of God. Then going over to chapter 6, it talks about the principles of the doctrine of Christ. The principles of the oracle of God and the principles of the doctrine of Christ in this case are the same. So you ought to be teachers, but you have need to that one teach you again what the, the first principles of, of the oracles of God. Um, so it's the same thing. <clears throat> Remember, these people are professing believers. They're not saved. What they needed to be taught is the basics of the gospel, of how to be saved, which they have rejected. So turn, on, turn to the back of uh, this sheet. Verse 12, 2. To these Jewish people here, the oracles of God would have been what we refer to as the Old Testament. Okay? Not the New Testament. The oracles of God would have been the Old Testament. Uh, in Acts 7.38, that is, he that was in the church or, or, or the, um, uh, the assembly, literally, in the wilderness, 
um, with the angel which spoke to him in Mount Sinai, and with our fathers who received the lively oracles to give unto us. The fathers received the living oracles, the living word of God to give unto us. The fathers of the Jewish nation, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Moses in the wilderness, but the, the oracles were given not so much through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but, but by the Jewish people. Romans 3.2. What advantage in verse 1 does the Jews have? Much every way chiefly were committed unto them were the oracles of God. So the oracles of God are the, is the word of God. And in the context here, it's the, what we call the Old Testament, the earlier scripture. So, now, need of milk would be the basic truths of Messiah and the gospel. Remember, the first principles of the oracles of God and the, and the, and the principles of the doctrine of Christ are the same thing. And the better way to interpret that, because when you, when you use the word Christ in the world that we live in today, who do you think of? Jesus. But you think of it totally, basically, in a church context, right? Who you, do you find Jewish people to, I can't wait for the coming of Christ? Orthodox Jews. No, no. No, but they might say, I can't wait for the coming of Messiah. And that puts a whole different spin because as a Christian, when a Christian reads this and is translated Christ, right away they think in a, in, a, in a church Christian context. But if it would be translated Messiah, which is the word, you, all, you, know, you put it in a whole different context of understanding. And, and so it should be the first principles of Messiah. You're really saying the same thing. But what is, what's being communicated or what is being heard depends on the hearer. And if you've grown up in the Christian world, you've grown up in the church, and you, and you hear the first principles of Christ, you think, well, that's Jesus and uh, the virgin birth and everything with Jesus, you know, that's revealed in the New Testament. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the basics of the Messiah and who he would be and what he would do. Now, that's revealed in the New Testament. So... Um, they have need of milk, basic truths about the Messiah. Newborns, I put down here, are born with a need for milk. These are become such as have need. Now notice the language. They have become such as have need. So they're not newborns in the sense they're just birthed into this world, whether you're speaking uh, physically, certainly not, or even spiritually. No, they have gotten to this position over time. They have become such. And that goes back to what it says earlier in verse 11. It's hard to explain to you because you become dull of hearing. You've, you've developed a callous. You've developed dullness. And dullness or a callous only comes over time after hearing it for many, many, many weeks or months or whatever the case might be. Um, and so they are become such because of their continuous exposure to the truth of Jesus being the Messiah and what he has done and their callousness that they have come to in regard to that teaching. 
they have need of going back to the basics. He wants to go on with them, but they're not able to. Need of milk would be the basic truths of Messiah and the gospel. Newborns are born with a need for milk. These, though, are become such as have need. Because of their actions, they had gotten to a position where they needed the basics once again. When one hears the gospel over and over again, without come the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, he will reprove or convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Now, we've looked at that before. Uh, I, I've said this many times in the past. I'm, as the Lord tarries, I'm sure I'll say it many times in the future. When you share your faith with somebody, or when you get into an evangelism training program, whatever program that might be, and there are numbers of good ones out there, some perhaps better than others, but they should all, at one point or another, in that presentation of the gospel, cover these three areas. Sin, righteousness, judgment to come. For no other reason than Jesus said that when he leaves, has he left? Yeah, almost 2,000 years ago. He is going to send the, the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Did he? Yes. And the Holy Spirit's pre-salvation ministry. Notice what it says in verse 8. When he's come, he will reprove the world, the lost. Three things. Sin, righteousness, judgment to come. Sin is rebellion against God. It goes on in verse 9 and says, because you believe not in him. Uh, but sin is rebelliousness of God. You've got to show someone their sin before they'll look for a savior. And so any evangelistic program needs to focus on scripture passages that show an individual he's a sinner before God. If the Holy Spirit is going to convict in this area, we should work with the Holy Spirit. Righteousness is Jesus Christ. Righteousness because he's gone on to the Father. In other words, everything that Jesus is and everything that Jesus did is what the Holy Spirit will do in convicting unsaved people, the world, of their need for him. Because he is the righteousness of God. And so we've got to share in any good evangelistic program, we'll share about Jesus, who he is, why he came, that he died, that he was buried, that he rose again, that he paid our penalty for sin, and so on. He'll share the, you know, so all of that, in one form or another, has to be shared with the world, with unsaved people. Same with judgment to come. If you reject God's provision, which is Jesus, you only have judgment to look forward to. These are the three areas the Holy Spirit works in unbelievers' life. These are the three areas that any good evangelistic program needs to work around. It doesn't matter what order you share these in, but this has to be it. But when it talks about righteousness here, in verse 8, he will reprove the world in, uh, of sin and of righteousness. Righteousness is Jesus. So this individual, or these individuals uh, here, who are unskillful in the word of righteousness, 
They truly don't understand what Jesus has done. They may have a head knowledge, but they truly don't understand it. Otherwise, they would have come to him. So righteous not. Babe is not the translation of a Greek word that means infant. Such as is used in Luke 2.16. We're not going to look at that verse. Nor from a Greek word translated child, such as we find in Luke 1.7. It's from the Greek word uh, nepios, I think that's how you pronounce it, which means immature, as contrasted to mature. So it's not speaking of a babe in the sense of, of, of a young child or an infant or in the spiritual world, somebody who's just come to faith, a babe in Christ, for example, and, and that will be mentioned shortly. It speaks of someone who's immature. Now, this word is used um, 14 times in the New Testament. And if I remember correctly, it's 10 verses without counting all of these. But interestingly, and we'll look at one verse in particular, uh, it's used five times in one verse, this word. But seven times this word is translated child or children. Four times in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. It's translated that way in Galatians 4, verses 1 and 3, and Ephesians 4, 14. It is translated childish in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. So that's the five times this Greek word is used of the 14 times in the New Testament in one verse. Six times is translated babe. Obviously, one of the times is here. And this is based on the King James, by the way. But Matthew, Luke, Romans, 1 Corinthians 3, 1. But, but look at 1 Corinthians 13. If you have your Bibles, open to 1 Corinthians 13. Now, without, it's talking about the, when that which is perfect is come in verse 10, and that which is in part shall be done away with. I personally believe that the best explanation for what the perfect is is the word of God. But it's verse 11. Five times the word nephios is used in verse 11. When I was a child, that's the first time I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away child things. Or it's translated childish, but it's the same word. The things of what children do. So very clearly here you can see uh, immaturity versus maturity. When I was a child, I did this. When I became mature, when I grew up, when I became a man, I put away the things that children do. Five times here. So you can see the contrast here of, of child here, uh, not speaking necessarily, although this would obviously be a young uh, person, but of immaturity. You acted like a child. You know, somebody read those kids in there, the riot act, thank you. Uh, maybe they're hogtied to the chairs. No, hogtied's a bad word. Um, Puzzle. What do they do? Duct tape to the chairs. There you go. Um, so that's why they're so quiet. So what's that? Lois is in there. That's what, oh, thank you. Know, well, poor Lois. But anyway, thank you, Lois. Okay, that's why they're so quiet. Okay. But you see the, you, I hope you see the contrast in 1 Corinthians 13, 11. It's not speaking 
to the point of this being a young person, although it is a young person, but it's the speaking to the point of immaturity versus maturity. That's the, that's the point here. Again, going back to uh, Kenneth Wiest, he says this. We must be careful to note that the Greek word babe in itself carries it with it no implication of salvation. So just because babe is used doesn't mean it speaks of salvation. The phrase babe in Christ, as used today, does refer to a new convert. Paul's use of it in 1 Corinthians 3.1 is different. There he refers to immature Christians. Furthermore, the word babe needed the qualifying phrase in Christ to indicate that these Corinthian babes were saved. So if you want to back up to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we're in 1 Corinthians um, in verse 1. And I, brethren, not could, speak, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes, where? In Christ. So you have the qualifier there. Um, <clears throat> Therefore, the word babe in our Hebrew passage cannot be made to show that the person is referred to as, as a saved individual. It has no birth relationship idea about it. The analysis of the book and the context in which the word is found require that we understand it to refer to these unsaved Hebrews because of their neglect of the New Testament truth and their turning away from it have again become immature in their spiritual apprehension of the same. So I think you can see the distinction of babes. When it's used by Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, there's a qualifier. They're babes, but where? In Christ. And that qualifies that we're speaking of immature Christians. Babes itself alone, though, has no um, implication, inference uh, of, of salvation at all. That is the case in Hebrews here. It's not inferring that they're, they're saved and they're, they're babes in Christ. What it is saying is you're immature. Now, the babes in Christ in 1 Corinthians 3 were um, young Christians, but they're, they're, the basic teaching of that is they were immature Christians. That's the babes part. They were immature is what he's saying. So these are unsaved people who don't understand salvation, the word of righteousness, uh, because <clears throat> they are immature They've never come to a fullness of the understanding and accepted the Lord is what it says. Now, verse 14. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, that have grown up. Now, in the context, it's between immature and maturity, between not being saved and being saved. Strong meat belongs to them that are full age, even those who by reason uh, of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So the, the writer here uses the contrast, but. But strong meat belongs to them that are full age. So he's contrasting those who can't even handle the basics because they're just immature. But the strong meat. Now, in the context, what is the strong meat he's talking about? 
Melchizedek. I have much that I want to say unto you. Remember what the, the earlier part in, in verse um, 11. I have many things of whom we have many things to say of Melchizedek. But they're hard to explain because you're dull of hearing. You're sluggish. You're callous. Because you're not saved. You're just babes. Uh, so strong meat, what I'm going to explain about Melchizedek doesn't belong to you. It belongs to those who are mature who are saved. And what he's going to ultimately do is get into, in chapter 7, explaining about Melchizedek. Strong meat belongs to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So the writer uses the contrast, but shifts the thought of this verse to save people, those who are able to, to handle strong meat. These are obviously saved people. They've advanced beyond the milk stage. They are saved and have used their mind to discern between good and evil. Now, the inference of this passage is that those in need of milk needed to go back to the basics of what they needed from the Word of God, salvation. The professors needed to go back to the basics, salvation. These, though, are different. These who have passed beyond the milk stage, they understood the gospel and they are saved, have in their Christian life used the word of God to grow and to be able to discern between good and evil. Now, good and evil here has nothing to do, certainly not primarily, with moral good and evil. It's doctrinal good and evil. What is doctrinally good or what is doctrinally evil. What is good teaching and what is false teaching. They have exercised their senses and gotten to the place that they can discern between the two here. So the primary thought here is doctrinal good and evil. In other words, whether the teaching is good or bad, good or evil. By the way, this is the entire premise of the book. Jesus is better than Moses. Moses was good in the house, but Jesus is over the house. Jesus is better than the Levitical priests, because he's ultimately a priest after the order of Melchizedek that never ends. Uh, Jesus is better than the angels, chapter 1 into chapter 2. Why? Because Jesus is God himself, one of the strongest portions of the word of God, uh, showing that Jesus is God. So over and over, it's this contrast you need to discern because the professing believers were in danger of what? Going back. Going back to, to what I call mosaism, not even Judaism. The temple was still standing. Now, to put it in application today, it might be you're witnessing to a Catholic. And, and it's, not, it's, not, it's not an exact um, parallel because Jesus was a whole new introduction in the Jewish world when he came, as he is today the Jewish world. Uh, but Catholics accept Jesus. They don't accept the biblical Jesus. They have a Roman Catholic Jesus. They have a Jesus that you can find in that wafer, in that cup, at, at, at Mass. Uh, they don't believe in the gospel by grace through faith. It's, grace, it's faith plus works and so on and so forth. And it's like you're witnessing to a Catholic and, and they're coming along 
But at one point, they, 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 no, I'm going back to the Catholic Church. And I've known of those who have come out of the Catholic Church, professed the Lord, and then sometime down the road, they've renounced it and gone back to the Catholic Church. That type of thing. And you could apply it to uh, other areas of, of, of the world today. But this is peculiar or particular to the first century um, and what is happening. So <clears throat> the thought of discernment is, is not moral good or evil, but doctrinal good or evil. Um, for example, look at the last sentence, the last question on this page. If one teaches that following the Mosaic law will get one to heaven, is this teaching good or evil? If you follow the Mosaic law, you, you, you'll be saved. If I teach you that and tell you that's what the Bible teaches, what should be your response? That's, that's evil. That's heresy. That's, that's wrong. That's doctrinally wrong. That's not good teaching. That's bad teaching. That's the point of this verse. Now, when you look at the Mosaic law itself, in and of itself, is the Mosaic law good or evil? in and of itself. It's good. Look at Romans 7. Now we're on the next page. Verses 7 and verse 12. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, had not known sin, but by the law, for I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. See, there's nothing wrong with the law. Well, the problem is us. And we can misuse the law. We can uh, erroneously teach about the law. That's where if I would teach that you get saved by keeping the Mosaic law, you should immediately reject that teaching. And there are those out there who say you get saved by keeping some kind of law system. That's, that's doctrinally evil. Because what you're doing is sending that person to hell, ultimately. That's what it's talking about here. So, now, look at, look at we, that, that brings us, then, to the first three verses where we're going to end tonight um, of Hebrews chapter 6. Therefore. Now, when you have the therefore in Scripture, what's the saying? You need to stop and see what it's there for. Exactly. So, therefore. So, it's predicated what he's about to say on what he has just said. <clears throat> you can't hear what I'm going to say. You're babes. You're unsaved. You're, you become dull of hearing. But there are those who, who can take the strong meat. And they can exercise the discernment that is needed to discern between good and and evil between good teaching and bad teaching. And, and that's where he is left off uh, in chapter 5. Strong meats belong to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. So then what he says, therefore, in other words, what I want to do, I want to go on. I want to go on and, and teach the meat. So he starts in verse 1 of chapter 6. Therefore, 
leaving the principles of the doctrine of Messiah, let us go on onto perfection. I want to leave the basics. I want to leave the foundation. I want you to come to perfection. Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith toward God, the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. What I want to do is I, I want to leave behind the doctrines, the basic principles of Messiah. Uh, go on to perfection. We'll look at what perfection means. It literally means, I'll tell you, it means salvation. Not laying again these basic principles. Repentance from dead works, faith toward God, baptisms, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this will we do if God allows me to do it, if God permits. But again, if, if you would just read this, you might say, well, that, that's all the doctrines of Christianity, right? Repentance, faith, baptisms, laying on of hands. Well, at least if you're charismatic, you're laying on of hands. Anyway, you know, um, resurrection of the dead, eternal, you know, all of that. But the, what the context is, he's speaking to unsaved Jewish people. And the principles of the Messiah and the Bible that you find in the earlier scripture in the Old Testament. So, starting out, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of Messiah. Hebrews 6.1 tells the readers to leave behind the elementary teachings. Go on. The context of the book and the warning passages can't be referring to New Testament truth, but must be referring to the need to leave Old Testament truth and go on to New Testament truth, specifically sacrifice, sacrifice of Jesus. F.F. Bruce says this, when we consider the rudiments one by one, it is remarkable how little in the list is distinctive of Christianity. For practically every item could have its place in a fairly orthodox Jewish community. Each of them indeed acquires a new significance in a Christian context. But the impression we get is that existing Jewish beliefs and practices were used as a foundation on which to build Christian truth. It is significant, wrote Alexander Narn, that the points taken as representing the foundation of penitence and faith are all consistent with Judaism. Not doctrines, but doctrines of washings. How unnatural are the attempts to explain this plural as referring to Christian baptism. See, it doesn't say Christian baptism, it's plural, baptisms. We'll look at that word shortly. Imposition of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, all this belonged to the creed of a Pharisaic Jew who accepted the whole of the Old Testament. Kenneth Wiest again. We now come to a careful study of the two Greek words translated leaving and let us go on. A correct understanding of these is absolutely essential to the proper exegesis, exegesis of the passage we are treating. The word translated leaving is a verb meaning to put or place with a preposition prefixed which means off or away. 
The preposition implies separation and is used with a case in Greek which implies separation. Expositor's Greek New Testament translates it here, let us abandon. The act of abandoning is the prerequisite to that of going on. One cannot go on first without separating oneself from that to which one is attached. Now what they were attached to was the Old Testament way. Judaism, if you want to use that term. You need to abandon that understanding. Go on. Leave it. John MacArthur says, leaving in the Greek is ephemi, which means to forsake, to put away, let alone, disregard, put off. It refers to total detachment, total separation from a previous location or condition. So what did they need to separate from? They need to leave the principles of the doctrine of Christ. Now, obviously, you don't need leave the principles of the doctrine of Jesus from the New Testament. What he is listing here are the doctrines found in Judaism or Mosaism in the Old Testament that any Pharisaical Jew would have believed. You need to leave those. Separate. And I ask the question, is a Christian ever told to leave the foundational teachings of our faith? Never. 2 Peter 1.12, Wherefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know them, and be established in the present truth. What Peter is saying is, I always will put you in remembrance of the basics. You keep on the need to be reminded of the basics of the Christian faith so that you never neglect them. Barbary, I guess, uh, in his commentary says this on this verse. His goal was to put the brethren in remembrance of these things, to remind them of the themes of the Christian life. One important function of a Christian minister is to remind the congregation of basic Christian teachings. Any Christian minister needs to continuously remind the congregation of basic truths. You should never get tired of the gospel. You should never get tired of hearing that the Bible is the word of God. You should never get tired of hearing that Jesus was virgin born. That salvation is by grace through faith alone. And there's, you know, a number of other doctrines, you know. It's the responsibility to always put in remembrance these basic truths. Now, there is a time to come to get into the more meatier portion of the Word of God. But Michael Green says this on this verse. They knew it all, of course. The twin themes of faith and works, grace and effort, were not new to them or any of the early Christians. But they needed to be reminded of these things. Such is the sometimes willful forgetfulness of the human heart that one of the prime functions of a Christian minister must be to keep the basic facts of Christian truth and conduct always before the minds of the congregation. So we, you always have to ultimately remind the people of the basics. And that's what Peter is saying. So when we have here in 6.1 of Hebrews... Can we leave? God, are you going to allow us, permit us, verse 3, uh, to leave the basic principles of Christ? It's not talking of Christian doctrine. It's talking of uh, Judaism and some of the basic doctrines in the Old Testament. Then it says this. Let us go on to perfection. 
Now, perfection in this context, in the book of Hebrews, other places as well, by the way, is used of the sacrifice of Christ, not Christian maturity. Now, in other places, it's used at times of Christian maturity, this word for perfection. Chapters 5 through 10 through 728, the end of 7, speak of Melchizedek and how this priesthood and sacrifice of Jesus is better than the Levitical high priest since it brings salvation. So, um, turn your sheet over. Telio is used nine times of 24 total times in the New Testament, this word perfection. Nine of those times it's used in Hebrews. Often, in the sense of to make perfect or fully cleanse from sin, in contrast to ceremonial Levitical cleansing. The writer is emphasizing the importance of perfection, which should cause any Jew who is contemplating the worth of Christ in the new covenant to realize his utter hopelessness to ever attain perfection under the old covenant. In sum, the fundamental idea of this word is the bringing of a person or thing to the goal fixed by God. That goal is salvation in Jesus. Now, here are the nine places it's used in Hebrews. In 2.10 it says this, For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect, through suffering. So who is the captain of our salvation? Christ, Jesus. Yeah. So he has made the captain of our salvation through, he's made, he, 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 the captain of our salvation is made perfect through sufferings. Now, is this teaching that Jesus was never perfect? That he had sinfulness? No. No, obviously here it's speaking of, of completeness. Um, and what is the completeness that his sufferings would bring about? Salvation. Through his sufferings, dying, buried, rising from the grave, he reached that point that we can be saved through his sufferings. Here it's talking about the salvation that's available to us through his sufferings. 5.9 of Hebrews and being, being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Now, that doesn't mean Jesus was ever imperfect at any time. It's the same thought as back in verse 10 of chapter 2. Being made perfect, being completed in what he came to do, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all of them that obey him. When did he complete that work? his resurrection. But Hebrews chapter 6 in the warning passage, we'll get into that detail next week, has nothing whatsoever to do with Christians. It is solely unsaved people that are in view. And it's, it's a sobering passage. Because if you keep hardening your heart and you become callous and there are people in churches that do it. People who come out Friday night to a Bible study, probably not in danger of this, my guess. 
But there's a lot of people who go to church on Sunday who are in danger of this. They hear it over and over and they just become callous and sluggish and dull and, 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 and the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. But if you keep on saying no to God, that, two, that sharp two-edged sword becomes dull and can't bring conviction because you've hardened your heart. That's who's in view, not Christians. And we'll look at that, Lord willing, next Friday. Any questions before we close? Yes. Okay. Do Jewish people consider the Messiah as God? No. That's almost across the board. Super, yes. Well, salvation is not always salvation from sin. Salvation could be from your enemies. David sometimes was running from Saul, who you could call King Saul, his enemy at the time. So it, it depends on the context of the salvation verse. Because salvation is not always salvation from sin. Hebrews is certainly talking about that. Salvation from the penalty of your sin, which only comes through Jesus. But every time salvation is... So it's a work salvation. There's a national salvation they believe, but we have to keep up our end or that doesn't get us there. Yeah. But it's, it's, a, it's a physical sense. Yeah. Not a spiritual. Yeah. Salvation in Judaism is not, uh, individual salvation in Judaism is not a um, main t topic. Uh, Judaism has often been uh, described as uh, a way of life. And so it, if you live right here, whatever right here, right means R-I-G-H-D, being righteous here. What, however that is defined, whether it's orthodox or conservative or reformed, the here and by, the here and after, the, the by and by, here and by and by, whatever, uh, will take care of itself. So they say, emphasize here, live properly here, and the future will take care of it. That's Judaism is defined. It's a way of life. It's not, you know, it's not Bible. That's not Mosaism. That's not the Old Testament, but that's Judaism. So there's no, in, there's no real teaching or interest in individual salvation. Um, but you can look at the confusion that arises from that. Forget, you know, if you put aside for a second the Bible and you're saved by grace through faith and not, not of works. I mean, you know, well, do we have to be Orthodox and do the works of an Orthodox Jew? Or is a conservative Jewish works enough? Or maybe Reformed Jews' works are good enough. We're not as, as Orthodox as conservative, certainly not those, those, those Orthodox guys down the street. You know, but is, you know, what, what is enough? And that's the problem when you get into a work salvation. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to, or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919-275-5500. 
4477. Shalom.